Father, just prepare our hearts even now. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And may we come with, a, with the intention of having a receptive heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, I'm Randy Van Dyke, one of the elders here at IBC, and I'll be doing a scripture reading this morning. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 24, 1 through 35. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another. Thou shalt not be thrown away. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when we... When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places." And these are the beginnings of the sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, reads, let him understand. Then those, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in these days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh shall be saved. But for the elect, luck's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, He is in the desert. Do not go out or look. He is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For whoever, for wherever the carcass is, there there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the heavens and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near to, at the doors. 
Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all heaven, till all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Well, thank you, Randy Van Dyke, for reading the passage for us this morning. Um, we're making a switch here, and uh, I know we're kind of embarking on something that is, uh, has been kind of debatable among the, the church for thousands of years, actually. You know, it's kind of interesting at this time of year, we are going into a season, or we're kind of already in the season of celebrating the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. And no doubt you've probably been uh, making preparations for whatever traditions you might have in your family. Uh, no doubt this time of year, especially if you've grown up in the church, uh, there are a lot of familiar songs or familiar passages that we kind of return to, maybe not throughout the year, but this time of year, we especially turn to certain songs and certain passages where we, we, th- we think about the angels that presented themselves to the shepherds, or we think about the wise men that kind of came from a long distance to present gifts to Jesus. We think about the manger, we think about uh, the angel telling Mary, you're going to you're going to give birth to a son and it's going to be a miraculous birth because you're a virgin. And so all these things uh, we are reminded of afresh this time of year. But honestly, when you reflect on the purpose of Jesus's first coming, it actually explains why we celebrate this time of year. When we, when we look at the purpose of his coming, it does help us better understand, oh, this is what we're celebrating. This is why we are doing what we're doing. And so when you think about what is the purpose, why did Jesus come to earth to, to kind of take on the form of flesh, to take on a human body, we see that he came to call people to repentance. He came to heal the sick. He came to introduce the kingdom of heaven He came ultimately to reconcile us to God by enduring the punishment for our guilt and declaring us righteous. You might recall what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, and actually he was quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. When Jesus was in the temple, he's addressing the crowds. He opens the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, an interesting observation when you, if you were to look to Isaiah chapter 61, you would, you would actually quickly observe that when Jesus read that passage, he actually stopped short uh, kind of mid-verse, he, he read verse 2, the first half, but he stopped right there and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What was Jesus re- referring to? What was he meaning by that? Basically, he meant this, that the purpose of his first coming, the purpose of his first coming was to save people. That's why he came. That's why he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. But, but if you were to read the next phrase in Isaiah 61 verse 2, what Jesus left out was this, and the day of vengeance of our God. Meaning, the first coming was marked by proclamation of good news and, and miraculous healing and, and to save people. But the second coming of Jesus will be marked by judgment 
This is what Jesus describes in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, that, that one day He is coming back, but His second coming will be very different than His first coming. His first coming is to save, and His second coming will be to judge sin once and for all. Now just for the sake of review here, just the sake of kind of where we're coming from in our text, you might recall from last week in Matthew 23, Jesus was in the temple and he was addressing the crowds and he was warning the crowds of false teachers, warning the crowds of a false religion, and then he pronounced judgment on the religious leaders. And of course, upon that, that final sermon of Jesus, they're walking out of the temple and it says this in verses 1 and 2, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What Jesus just declared to his disciples in that moment, that he says this, this temple, the Jewish temple, the, the central place of Jewish culture and identity would be completely destroyed. Which, by the way, was kind of a, a pretty impressive um, uh, um, claim to make because some of the stones, when he says not one stone will be upon another, some of these stones were pretty massive. Some of them were 40 feet wide or 40 feet long by 12 feet wide by 12 feet tall stacked on top of each other. And he's saying not one stone will be laid upon another. Well, of course, this kind of gets the disciples' attention, right? They're kind of like, wait, what are you talking about, Jesus? And so they begin to ask him some questions in verse 3. Tell us, they say, when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? And so Jesus proceeds to tell them the signs that will precede his imminent return. I do want to set the parameters here for a moment because when we think about the second coming of Jesus or what we oftentimes refer to as eschatology in the kind of theological world or it's kind of the study of last things, we, we realize, or you must understand, we all probably understand to some degree that this kind of sparks a lot of debate because there are a lot of perspectives, there are a lot of positions, there are a lot of uh, convictions on how everything is going to play out. You know, for example, some will say, I'm pre-trib, or I'm mid-trib, or I'm post-trib, or I'm a millenni- I believe in a millennial reign, or I believe in no millennial reign, it's, I'm all millennial. And of course, if you don't follow me up to this point, don't worry about it, because these are all different camps, different interpretations of how people believe this will all kind of unveil. Even in our text this morning, when Jesus kind of gives signs of the times, there's even the understanding, because a lot of prophecy works this way, prophecy works more often than not as a double fulfillment. Meaning that when a prophecy was given, you see that there was kind of a near fulfillment as well as a a far fulfillment. There was something that was going to happen kind of within the first next couple hundred years or whatever, but then it also was a far fulfillment, meaning it was all about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's even debate as to whether everything Jesus says in this text is all about what precedes his second coming or if there's something uh, that the, the disciples can expect even in their lifetimes. The point is this, however, regardless of your end-time predictions, regardless of your end-time convictions, we would all do well to not miss the primary point Jesus is trying to make for us. 
We will all benefit very greatly when we understand why Jesus says what he does. Because you see, Jesus' primary point is not to answer every question we may have about how it's all going to end. That's not his ultimate point. No, Jesus' primary point in, is, in saying what he does is to prepare you and to prepare me and to prepare all Christians for whatever will happen. Whether it be next week, whether it be next month, whether it be next year, whether it be in the next five years, the next million years, it doesn't matter. His focus is on our attitude. His focus is on our character that will ultimately guide us in the coming days regardless of what happens. So the question that is kind of posed for us this morning is this. How should we approach this debatable subject of Christ's return? What, what common ground can we meet on regardless of our personal conviction of last things? Well, this morning I'm going to kind of have, kind of have two parts to uh, the sermon here. The first part is this. We're going to identify what Jesus says will occur prior to his second coming. And this is regardless of your position or our perspective of end times. We're just explicitly throwing out there, this is what Jesus says will happen. And secondly, we will identify how we as Christians should respond when they occur. So what they are and how we are called to respond. So what does Scripture say will occur, occur prior to Jesus' second coming? And there's actually seven, seven signs that Jesus uh, refers to or alludes to that, that give indication that will kind of precede his second coming. The first sign is this. There will be false messiahs. The first sign of Jesus' second coming is that there will be false messiahs. Listen to verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verses 23 and 24, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. When Jesus talks about false messiahs or false Christ or really what he's referring to is antichrist, he's literally, literally referring to people who claim to know the truth or the way to God. These are, these are people that have great influence over the lives of others and will lead many away from the truth. The Bible calls these antichrists. We're not talking about the Antichrist in Revelation, but there are many Antichrists. Now, what is an Antichrist? John gives us a description here in 1 John chapter 4 when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You might recall from our sermon last week and from Matthew chapter 23, we asked this question, how do you discern 
if someone is a false teacher or not? How do you know? How, how can you kind of pay attention? How can you understand and, and, and identify if someone is a false teacher or not? And, and really, we said the primary question we ought to ask first and foremost is, ask them, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And as we even learned last week, if Jesus is anything less than the Son of God and Lord over all, then that person is a false teacher. You see, a second sign of the times, a second sign that precedes Jesus' second coming, and that is that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7 says, Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, of course, you were to take a a quick glance at this, you'd be like, well, there's always been uh, kind of wars and and rumors of wars. I think ever since the the beginning of time and ever since sin entered the world, there's always been people battling it out. I mean, Cain and Abel, that was the first murder that took place. So we see that war has always been kind of part of our human reality. But Jesus seems to kind of to describe it this way, that this will be kind of a a global unrest. This isn't just kind of some civil war that's happening in some nation. This is a global unrest like never before experienced. A third sign of Jesus' coming is this, that there'll be famines, there'll be natural disasters, there'll be strange phenomenon. We see in verse 7 also that there'll be famines, earthquakes in various places. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but just this year alone, there have already been over 100 natural disasters around the globe. And I'm not talking about like little tremors that earthquake sensors pick up. I'm talking about natural disasters that have affected the lives of millions of people. That has taken place already just this year alone. It kind of resonates with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That pain of childbirth, Jesus also mentions in our passage in Matthew chapter 24. We see that, that all these things are like birth pains But as Jesus kind of signals, he says that their birth pangs just kind of signal the end, but they are not the end. And he kind of kind of pairs it kind of illustratively through birth pangs, like as as a mother well knows, when uh, when the when when it's time to give birth, the body changes, everything kind of kicks into high gear, and we see that there are contractions that begin to take place. But contractions doesn't mean the baby's coming out in a split second. No, contractions are an indicator; they're a sign that things are changing. But it could still be a while. And for some moms, it's a long while. These are birth pangs that must take place. But Jesus says, but the end is not yet. A fourth sign that Jesus gives indication to that must occur before he comes is that there will be persecution. 
Verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verses 21 and 22, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. We see that Jesus already warned his disciples that that they would be persecuted because of who they follow. In other words, Christians will be regarded with disdain because of who they identify with. Remember from John chapter 15, right? Jesus says this to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. All these things, verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So Christians during this time will experience all kinds of, uh, of difficulties and hardships. For example, they'll, they'll experience uh, uh, maybe a loss of freedoms and a loss of rights, a loss of respect, and maybe even a loss of their lives. But a fifth sign that precedes Jesus' imminent return is that false Christians will walk away from the truth. False, false Christians will walk away from the truth. And there's really kind of three predominant reasons for that. First of all, we see they walk away from the truth because they are deceived. Remember what Jesus warns the people, warns his disciples of. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So they will be deceived. But a second reason why they will walk away from the truth is because of the inevitable persecution. You might recall from Matthew chapter 13, we get the parable of the soils, right? And the seeds are landing on all kinds of soils. One of the soils is a rocky ground. And Jesus describes this seed that falls on rocky ground as where, where there's an, kind of an initial root, there's an initial springing up of a flower. But, he says, eventually that will die or because of tribulation and persecution. But I think a third and really kind of overarching reason why false Christians will walk away from the truth is because they were never saved to begin with. People will walk away from the truth because they were never really of the truth. This is what John speaks of in 1 John 2.19 when he says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order to be shown that they they were not really of us. We, we, We should not miss this, church family. We should not miss this point Because the the description here is people at this point in time right now that look or appear to be Christian. They go through the motions. They are people that are probably participating in church right now. People that are singing songs about Jesus right now. People that are a part of a, a life group or some Bible study right now. People that profess truth right now. And yet, as James says, even the demons believe in God, but they are not saved. 
we see that ultimately persecution reveals who truly belongs to God. A sixth sign that precedes Jesus' imminent return is that the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. Now the question is, why, why is that? Well, why will the love of many grow cold? And it's very, very simple because he says lawless, lawlessness will be rampant. Lawlessness will increase. Sin will be uncontrolled. People will, be, be, will betray one another and hate one another. Paul actually describes in more detail what this will look like in 2 Timothy 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That is quite a laundry list of description. And Paul says, avoid such people. The fact is, brothers and sisters, there's always kind of an inverse relationship with the Spirit and our flesh. You see, when you and I are living in the flesh, or when the flesh is kind of dominating our, our soul, our, our life in the moment, we cannot love God, and we cannot love our neighbor as we are called. It says, as Paul says in Galatians, he says, the only thing we can do when we are living in the flesh is that we can bite and we can devour one another. That's what we can accomplish because of our flesh. And that's what we do. On the other hand, when you and I are in submission to the Spirit, then we are empowered to both love God and love our neighbor as ourself. As John would say in 1 John 1, 7, if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. The love of many will grow cold preceding the imminent return of Christ. But seventh and finally, we see that Jesus says there will be a worldwide proclamation of the gospel. You see, you've got to remember that we right now in the kind of this church age, we are living in a day or an age of grace. Remember, Jesus came first to save people. He came first to redeem people. He came first to reconcile people to God. So he's been doing that for the past couple thousand years. He's commissioned his children to go into all the world and to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we are in an age of grace, but one day that will cease to exist. One day, God will withhold, God will kind of lift his gracious hand. But until that time comes, he said, the whole world will have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus. And when we take a step back from all these different signs, all these different descriptions of what will happen before the imminent return of Christ, it is kind of ironic when you think about it that all these things that will happen before he returns in a lot of ways, are happening now. And they've been happening for a very long time. In other, in other words, ever since Christ ascended back to heaven, there has always been 
antichrists or false prophets. There's always been wars and nations warring against nation. There's always been famines and earthquakes and natural disasters. And and there's always been religious persecution. and, And sin has abounded everywhere. So much so, this is why the Thessalonian believers really thought that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. The Thessalonian believers, Paul encourages them and kind of uh, he kind of, kind of calms their nerves a little bit, saying, hey, we don't know the day or the hour, but we do know this, that they, they thought that obviously Jesus is going to return because all these descriptions are true of our life and reality right now. Even Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. And so there was kind of this expectation or belief or perspective that, yeah, I think Jesus is going to return because all these descriptions are true of my life currently. So on the one hand, we could easily conclude that evil has always wreaked havoc in our world. But the end-time reality that Jesus describes here in Matthew 24 and also in 25 is really a day in which God's gracious hand will be lifted and there will be nothing to stand in the way of evil. In other words, evil has only progressed to a certain point or to a certain degree because of God's gracious intervention. But one day that will be removed, and it's kind of crazy to think about, even this past year, but it's going to get worse. And evil has actually been withheld, but it's going to get worse. It's going to get more evil. It's going to become more lawless. So the manner in which Christians historically endured this persecution and hardship is really, however, the manner in which we are called to endure today. And even if it is the last days. You see, as I encouraged in the beginning, regardless of whether we are actually in the last days or if it's just more of the same that has been true for the past 2,000 years, how Christians have responded has never changed. It's still the same. We are still called to respond in the same way, whether it is imminent that Christ is going to return or if it's just more of the same because sin has still not yet been fully judged. The question for you and for me is how are we to respond? How should Christians respond to hardship and tribulation? What What does Jesus exhort us to do in light of these last things? There are six things I want to to highlight here that Jesus mentions here. The first response is this. Christians should not be led astray. Don't be led astray, Jesus says. Remember what he talked about from Matthew 23. He he recognized the symptoms of a false religion that ultimately leads to eternal damnation. And so he, he, and and as we understand that many people will be deceived and and many people will kind of of surround themselves with people that give them the, the kind of Jesus they really want, the kind of Jesus that tickles their ears, right? They'll surround themselves with a version of Jesus that better suits their preferences and desires, even Paul says in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The question 
is how do you and I resist deception? He says, don't be led astray. So how do you and I not become vulnerable to that? How do you and I resist being deceived? Well, we kind of already read it, but I'll reiterate it very briefly again. And that is out of 1 John chapter 4, where we are called to test the spirits, to test everything with the word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, John says, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God For many false prophets have gone into the world. Really, the exhortation to you and to me is that we need to to become like Bereans, right? We need to filter everything through what Scripture teaches, uh, whether we are are taking in the news or taking on uh, kind of evaluating and grappling social issues and social trends and moral issues and, and TV shows and movies, you name it. Everything must be filtered through the Word of God because here's the fact. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Everything in life is discipling you. Everything you expose yourself to is discipling you. It is shaping you. It is influencing you. It is informing you. It has an effect on you. It has an effect on your children. And we are inundated in our world today with all kinds of worldly messages and mixed messages and contrary messages that can ultimately lead to unbiblical conclusions. And so it's it's essential. It is of the utmost importance that you and I filter everything through what has God already said. The second response is not just that we, would be, that we would avoid deception or don't be led astray, but the second response is do not be alarmed. Jesus says, do not be alarmed. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. You know, oftentimes, even as Christians, our, our fear or our unsettledness or our, our panic can derive from the fact that everything is changing. Our predictable lives are no longer predictable nor controllable. Everything we once knew is now different. And we struggle to accept that the world is changing. By the way, kind of a quick little side note here. What was once normal for all of us, probably back in 2019, and although everything has kind of changed in 2020, we've got to understand or accept the fact that we're not going back to the old normal. There's no going back to the old normal. Yeah, there'll be some things that are familiar, but we are not going back. Life as we know it will be different. But that's okay. It's okay that it's different. Because everything that must happen is happening according to God's sovereign plan. The world may may appear to be falling apart. But brothers and sisters, it's actually all falling into place. So don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. Put your hope in God. Now when you think about how, where we place our hope, without realizing it sometimes, maybe even for some of you or most of you, we can so easily identify that we can feel at peace and have a, a degree of hope based on our economic status, 
based on our relational quality, based on our political preferences, based on all kinds of a number of things. But that's not what Scripture teaches is the basis of our hope. Psalm 33 says this, We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we must trust in His holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. Kind of begs the question, doesn't it, IBC? As you kind of reflect on this personally, what is your basis of hope? What do you or who do you depend on? Is your hope largely influenced by how things play out politically, economically, or whateverly? Or is your hope totally, fully, and completely in God alone? The third response that we are encouraged to to implement as Christians is to watch confidently. Verses 32 and 33, we see this parable from the fig tree. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, Jesus says, when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. We see that the parable of the fig tree kind of points to the fact that we don't know exactly when all these things will transpire. We don't know exactly when everything is going to take place, but we can recognize the signs. Therefore, as Christians, we are called to watch. But not just watch with an unsettled spirit, but to watch with confidence. Not fear, because we know that God is the one who is orchestrating everything. Nothing happens unless it is part of God's redemptive plan. So we are not led astray. We don't get deceived by false teachers. We aren't alarmed by all the events that are taking place around us. We watch confidently, but fourthly, we endure faithfully. You see, brothers and sisters, endurance through tribulation is a sign of genuine faith. Or maybe I could say it this way, it's a litmus test of true faith is kind of found through the process of enduring through tribulation. The question is, how do we do that faithfully? How do we, how do we endure through tribulation faithfully? I think there's two things to recognize or identify here. First of all, it's by not being surprised when you suffer. You know, oftentimes we're taken back like, oh, I'm doing all the right things. Why am I suffering? And, and Scripture teaches us or encourages us, and don't be surprised when you suffer. Jesus, this is what Jesus encouraged and exhorted his disciples with. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. Even Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter says, don't be surprised, right? 
Don't be alarmed, but don't be surprised. So therefore, when you're not surprised, you're able to endure faithfully. And the way in which we endure faithfully is, first of all, not being shocked and awed by something strange happening to us. But secondly, that we would rejoice, that we, we, that we would worship. We, we overcome, we endure faithfully because we are persistent in our worship. I was just reading earlier this week, kind of going through the book of Job, and we see that in the very first chapter, you, and you probably know the whole story, I mean, he loses all ten children, all his servants are dead, all his crops are taken. I mean, he has basically lost everything. A man of great wealth has lost everything, and it all comes to him in one day. One after another, just bad report after bad report after bad report. And this is the response of Job. It says in verse 20 of Job chapter 1, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and complained before God. No, that's not what it says actually. It says Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. That was Job's response. He just lost everything and he worshipped. You might recall Paul and Silas, right? They're unfairly, they're not even put on trial. They just get unfairly beaten and thrown into the Philippian jail, right? What do they do? Complain and bicker and argue? Do they kind of wallow in their self-pity? Woe is me. On one hand, I go, I wouldn't see why not. I could probably, I could probably say that's, that would be the strong temptation for me, but that's not how they respond. No, we see that they are worshiping. They're, they're singing hymns and songs of praise. So much so that you know the rest of the jailers, you know the rest of the people in prison are going, what is up with them? Are they crazy or is there something going on supernaturally? Obviously, we know it's the latter. They worshiped God. Brothers and sisters, God has created you. He has created me. He has created all people to be worshipers. We were created for the purpose of worshiping God with our lives in every facet of life. And Satan, our enemy, desires to do whatever it takes. He, he will do whatever it takes to, dis, to dis, deceive us, to distract us, to make us wallow in our self-pity. Anything so that we stop worshiping God. Which, by the way, is intrinsic to our identity and our creation. He will do whatever it takes to to distract us just so long as we are not worshiping our Creator God. But the way in which you and I are overcomers, the way in which you and I endure faithfully is through our worship. So if you're feeling discouraged even now, if you're struggling, because I know many are, If it's just hard right now, what is the proper response? As we see in our text, the proper response is worship. Then all of a sudden, evil can have no part and no place. Our flesh can have no part and no place. And God is glorified by His children. Fifth response for Christians is to complete your mission. Complete your mission. 
You know this passage very well, but I'll read it again because we need to rehearse this constantly. Matthew 28, we'll get it to at the very end of our time here in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's called obedience. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. (laughs) Jesus said that that the end would come as soon as the gospel of the kingdom was proclaimed to all the world. It sort of kind of begs the question, how do we know when this technically happens? How do we know? Does it just we know it because Jesus comes back? Is there a way to kind of to gauge it? Is there a way to kind of predict it? The fact is we won't fully know. Uh, we don't have enough metrics in place to really identify that with certainty. I believe one commentator said it this way, and I thought it was very appropriate. He says, I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I, on, I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. What is our response as Christians? It is to complete our mission. The way I kind of translate this, what this commentator said was basically this, in a, kind of in our, in our current context, in our ter- current climate, so to speak. I couldn't help but just kind of, the, these kind of phrases came to my mind this week. Let's stop griping about masks and start grappling with ways that we can reach the lost with Jesus Christ. Let's stop bickering about opinions and start building bridges of opportunity to pursue the lost. Let's stop complaining about COVID and start proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Let's stop fearing about things that are out of our control and start forging ahead on the broken front to glorify God. Let's stop. You, you get the point, right? I could go on and on and on. The point is this people are dying, people are dying without a Savior. And so if we could just stop fighting one another and stop dying on hills called preference, and if we could redirect our resources and our time and our energy to fighting the real battle, which is the battle for lost souls, I believe that is the manner in which God will be glorified. The question is, can you and I unite and link arms for that divine purpose? I believe the answer is an emphatic yes. People are lost. People are dying. People need a Savior. And could we redirect our attention on that issue? Sixth and finally, church family, this is closely related. It comes right on the heels of the fifth point. Complete your mission because judgment is coming. Remember, the first coming of Jesus was to save us from our sin. 
Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is why He came the first time. But His second coming will be to judge sin once and for all. And when that time comes, the opportunity for salvation will be no more. You know, if you think about it this way, there's one thing we can do on this side of eternity. There's one thing we can do while we are living in this world that we cannot do in heaven, and that is to win souls for eternity. And so may this eternal judgment that awaits unrepentant sinners, may that compel us to fulfill our mission, to complete our mission, to do whatever it takes to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are on a wide path to eternal torment. May this motivate us. May this compel us to complete our mission. Just a follow-up, Christmas Eve is going to look different this year, but it's going to be an incredible time. And we just want to encourage you in this way. You know, as you're with your families, first of all, if you can, don't do Christmas Eve alone. Really seek to do it with one another. Yes, we can't come one, come all, and pack this place out like we're used to, but you know what? We can still have a rich time. So in your groups, in your Bible studies, in your life, in your life groups, in your family traditions, whatever it is, when you're together, it is going to be a, a, an incredible time of worship, an incredible time where the, the, the whole body is taking ownership of this service. And I look forward to worshiping with you, being ministered by the Word, and really just setting the tone for this Christmas season. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your worship.